Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Tuesday, the 16th of January, 2024. Thank you for listening and making this show one of the top 15 most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong, according to statistics from Podstatus. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, a delegation of former top US officials met leading political figures in Taipei Monday, saying they hoped for continuity under the new administration of Taiwan's president-elect William Lai. A delegation led by ex-National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley and former Deputy Secretary of State James Steinberg met with the Democratic Progressive Party's Mr Lai, who won an unprecedented third consecutive presidential term for his party on Saturday. In a meeting with President Tsai Ing-wen, Mr Hadley said that Washington's commitments to Taiwan were rock solid and said it hoped to continue working with Taipei to safeguard peace in the Taiwan Straits. The People's Bank of China left one of the country's most important interest rates unchanged on Monday, defying economists' expectations for further easing to boost a weak economy. The PBOC kept the interest rate on just under 140 billion US dollars of one-year medium-term lending facility loans to the banking system, unchanged at 2.5% on Monday. Weaknesses across China's economy, including deflation and a slowing real estate sector, had fueled expectations of further interest rate cuts. The European Central Bank may defy market expectations and hold off on starting interest rate cuts during the whole of 2024, the bank's governing council member Robert Holtzman said Monday. Asked about those who call for the first rate cut to take place as soon as April, Austria's central bank governor told CNBC, I'm afraid those people will be deeply disappointed. He added, everything we've seen in recent weeks points in the opposite direction, so I may even foresee no cut at all this year. And Germany's economy contracted 0.3% last year as high inflation, rising interest rates and elevated energy costs weighed on Europe's largest economy. The Federal Statistics Office said GDP was still above pre-pandemic levels after last year's contraction, which followed two years of rebounding output and left it 0.7% up from 2019. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Will Denya, US economist at Gavacal, and our US correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. And while you're there, please take a look at my daily Asian newsletter. U.S. stock and bond markets were closed Monday for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Japanese and Indian stocks led Asia-Pacific markets higher on Monday. Japan's topics rose 1.2%, breaking past 2,500 points for the first time in nearly 34 years. Japan's Nikkei 225 continued its record-breaking run, with the index closing 0.9% higher at 35,902. The Nikkei 225 is up 7.3% so far in 2024. Taiwan stocks rose after voters handed the ruling Democratic Progressive Party a third straight presidential term. The Taiwan-weighted index added 0.2%. In India, the Nifty 50 index rose 0.9%, breaching 22,000 points for the first 
first time in its history, boosted by a rally in information technology companies. And the BSE Sensex Index rose 1.1%, up for the fourth straight session to a fresh record high above 73,000. Chinese equities edged lower on Monday after the People's Bank of China announced it would keep its medium-term lending facility rate, a policy tool that helps determine liquidity in the financial system, unchanged. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index fell 28 points, or 0.2%, to 16,216. And the Hang Seng Index has retreated almost 5% since the beginning of the year. That's the worst start to a year since a 10% drop in the first two weeks of trading back in 2016. The tech index slumped almost 2% after losing 3.4% last week. It was dragged lower by an 11.5% plunge in shares of tech giant Baidu, which is the most in more than a year, following a report in the South China Morning Post that alleged a tie-up between the company and the country's military. Baidu later denied that report. On the mainland, the CSI 300 closed 0.1% lower. That's close to a five-year low. The Shanghai Composite Index added 0.2% to 2,886, rebounding from its lowest level since May 2020. And investors are awaiting Chinese fourth quarter GDP figures and December activity data on Wednesday. And this morning, uh, for the further declines projected for Hong Kong stocks, futures markets pointing to the Hang Seng, opening about 120 points lower. That's 0.7% at 16,100. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Despite US markets being closed, there is plenty of business action going on to talk about. So let's welcome our guests. We have with us Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning, Mark. Uh, good morning, Peter. Good morning, everyone. And happy year of elections, if you can say that. It is. Half the world yeah. is voting this year. That's right. And also with us, Will Denyer, who is US economist at Gavacal. Happy New Year, Will. Happy New Year, Peter. And also with us is Barry Wood, our US economics correspondent. He's normally in Washington, D.C. I don't know if it's as freezing as those pictures that we're seeing coming out of Iowa this morning, where the Republicans are having their caucuses. Morning to you, Barry. Good morning, Peter. We have about um, one, one and a half inches of snow. So we are officially in winter. Yeah, certainly I am. Wow, that sounds uh, sounds pretty impressive over there. Let's start over here in Asia, though, in Taiwan in particular. A delegation of former top US officials met leading political figures in Taipei Monday, saying they hoped for continuity under the new administration of Taiwan's president-elect Lai Chi Ting. A delegation led by ex-National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley and former Deputy Secretary of State's James Steinberg met with the DPP's William Lai, who won an unprecedented third consecutive presidential term for his party on Saturday. Mr Lai won with just 40% of the vote. That's the lowest winning percentage since 2000. And his ruling DPP party also lost its majority in the legislature. Um, So, Mark, let me start with you. What was the message, do you think, from Taiwanese voters over the weekend? Well, that that they... They wanted the status quo to continue in Taiwan, which is not independence, but I guess it's what's more or less de facto independence. But they also wanted a a, a more diversified government. So they apparently liked some of the things that the other parties were saying. So they split their vote. 
Mm. In sense, and in fact, they reduced their vote obviously for the DPP because Cyan Wen won with over fifty percent of the vote uh, when she she was elected, reelected the last time. Uh, this time, uh, William Lai had about forty percent, with the with a little over thirty percent for for the Guomindang candidate, uh, Mr. Howe, and so on. So, I guess it 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 sends it sends that message, not radical, but. Uh, willing for a change, which will make the situation, I think, a bit problematic within Taiwan. We'll talk about outside of Taiwan as well, because it's going to be it might be harder to get bills passed, including defense spending and in other and other areas, which was the case when there were big split governments in the past. Externally, China so far has been relatively quiet publicly. They've been critical. You know, they they're using typhoon-like language and describing the election, but we'll see what happens. Not so much from this delegation, but I think the U.S. Speaker, for example, is talking about sending a delegation of, of current officials from the U.S. to Taiwan. And, you know, I don't know if he'll come, but if others come and, and, and that happens, there might be more of a reaction going forward. Is, is the idea of unification, I mean, the, the William Lai was very careful in his wording not to talk about being pro-independent, although he, he does seem to th- describe it as being pro-sovereignty. Um, is, yeah. is the idea of u- reunification with mainland China in the minds of Taiwanese people, is that moving further and further away um, and, and making it more and more difficult for China to achieve that aim? Well, it's a very careful definition, right? In the sense that, yeah, they don't they they don't want to. I I think by all all kind of polls, uh, most Taiwanese don't want this the current situation to change. So that would mean not not to reunify. But I think many of them would like to see maybe a revival of the economic ties that existed over time between Taiwan and and, and China and its. No investment has just has just dived has just dived uh, over the past few years between mm. Taiwan and China, and it was it was strongest during the, the time of Ma Yinzhou, who was the last Kuomintang uh, president. Yeah, yeah, Barry, how how much uh, on the agenda on the radar screen was this election in the U.S.? Well, I want to say not much, and I think that's where I'll I'll settle. Uh, the fact is that the American media and I think the Congress has been focused on this war in Gaza, Israel, focused on Ukraine, focused on funding. And of course, there was interest in this election. Don't get me wrong, but it just didn't leap forward. I thought the most significant thing, Peter, is that when President Biden, right after the election, results were known, was walking out of the Oval Office to his helicopter, he was asked about something. It wasn't even Taiwan. And he said, I do not favor independence. Mm. That is a scripted remark, but I think it's very significant. The Americans want to be seen, the administration wants to be seen as continued status quo, nothing radical to change as a result of the election. So in the U.S. eyes, this doesn't really change the trajectory of U.S.-China relations? I don't think so, no. Even look at this delegation that has gone. I mean, sure, these are respected former officials, the key being former. So that's not a problem, I wouldn't think. I don't think the Chinese are going to identify it. But of course, Mark, you and Will are much closer to this than I. 
But uh, I, I saw this as um, not a shrug of the shoulders, but a satisfaction that democracy prevails. And by the way, they got the results so quickly. We couldn't do such a thing. <laughs> and uh, and it just goes on. I was going to ask they you about a, I was over, gonna... over, They had an over 70 percent turnout, too. Exactly. Which, uh, that, that's which is a little higher than the U.S., a little higher than Hong Kong, especially our recent elections. So. <laughs> but I think it was down from their, their previous election, which is a little bit yeah. interesting. On the delegation, I, I agree that the, the the group was carefully chosen. And I, I've actually heard that one uh, strategy there was Biden was trying to get out ahead of a uh, congressionally led delegation that might be more incendiary. So send in some known hands um, and kind of control the situation there, whether you know Congress still sends somebody, uh, a group or not, will, remains to be seen. You know, if Congress sent some current serving officials, that would be a different kettle official together, wouldn't it? I think the Chinese would be well, far will, more upset. Peter, but let's not forget, Nancy Pelosi was a Democrat. The House Speaker today is a Republican. He may not want to replicate what Nancy Pelosi did by herself going to uh, Taiwan. So I think he'll be careful on this. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about the intersection between this election and uh, and, the, and the U.S. economy. It, it's clearly, I suppose, the t- semiconductor sector, isn't it? That's the uh, that's the dominant sector in in Taiwan. William Lai's vowed to continue to assist that sector. He said in his uh, speech afterwards, China and other countries must also cherish Taiwan's role in the global chip industry. I mean, this is where um, the the U.S. has a lot of dependencies upon Taiwan, isn't it? Well, I think it goes both ways. Um, I think the semiconductor industry uh, around the world and including in Taiwan also depends on U.S. technology for for part of its uh, production processes. So um, and and as you are fully aware, uh, you know, for a few years now, since Trump, basically, um, we've been having a, a spat there. So, yeah, it, it goes both ways. Um, the U.S. could cut um, Taiwan off of some of the you know technologies it needs. It's it's obviously not planning to do that. Um, across the strait is a different story. Mm. And is how um, successful has the U.S. been in trying to wean itself off of supply chains that that go through Taiwan? It's made a big effort to to do so, but has it been successful? Uh, not entirely. I, I, the U.S. And, and the world is still dependent on Taiwan uh, for for semiconductor production. They they're just such a major player. I don't have the numbers in front of me, um, but yeah, the U.S. The US like other countries, is, is fairly inter- interdependent there. And and I frankly am glad of that. Um, I I like global trade, and I hope that countries are always dependent on each other because mm. when when not dependent on each other, they can afford to be uh, more hostile enemies. And and what's happened to these plans to get companies like Foxconn to open new plants in in Arizona and TSMC to open plants in uh, in the U.S. as well, albeit with very large subsidies from the the U.S. government? I'm sort of getting the impression that those plans have run into the sand a little bit. Well, go ahead, Will. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think what they found is that there's a reason why Taiwan has has been so successful. It's it's hard to match. The level of expertise, uh, government subsidies, uh, labor costs that you have in Taiwan, uh, you go to the U.S. and particularly with a very tight labor market today, um, and you know not not as much uh, expertise in that area as you have in Taiwan, you know per population, it's just 
it's just a different, I mean, there's a reason why Taiwan has been so successful there. It's very hard to replicate. Yeah, I think you're right on that, Will. And I also think you're right, Peter, to talk about sort of evaporate, not that's the wrong term, sort of sinking into the sand because that's Phoenix. And But it's going forward. That's mm. the bottom line. Mm. Yeah, but and I, oh, go ahead. But it's moving slowly. No, I remember when uh, there was going to be investment. I think it was by Foxconn in Wisconsin, right? When Paul Ryan, when Paul Ryan was there, we haven't heard <laughs> haven't heard much of that since. But also, going the other thing is going forward, Peter. In terms of the reaction from the mainland, we don't know what it's going to be going forward. But of course, remember what happened when when Nancy Pelosi was there. Things like a mock blockade. Were, were instituted. And those are the sort of things that that I think that certainly our members would would worry about, mm-hmm. even if it, even if it, you know, even if it wasn't substantial, just the indication would would worry people and would uh, maybe move supply chains more quickly than they wanted to or when, when they were ready for. So I think everybody will be watching that closely, too, to see if there are any moves that really affect the economy and, and affect um, affect trade and movement of trade. Do you think um, China will change its approach to Taiwan? Because its approach really over the past few years hasn't worked, has it? In, certainly not in terms of um, changing minds and, and hearts and soul in, in, in Taiwan. People are, um, seem to be you know, moving in their own direction. They see themselves as Taiwanese, not not Chinese. Is it maybe, um, do you think there's a chance that maybe instead now China will engage more um, with the DPP? Mark? William Lai has suggested he wants that. My, I mean, we don't know. My guess is probably not. I, I don't think the rhetoric will change much, but in terms of behavior, that's what you have to look at. And if if China actually moderates what it does or doesn't do too much in response, that would be that would be uh, indicative. But you know, one of their spokespeople said this election represents a situation, dangerous situation of high winds and urgent waves, which is not exactly reassuring. <laughs> and, and it's entire- you know, I think. Sorry, Barry. I was I was simply going to say, Peter, that if you you look at the uh, the twenty years that preceded the last ten there was this uh, continual interaction economically between Taiwan and the mainland. Uh, the flights between Taipei and the mainland were up each year. Uh, I think that's the way that both sides, I'm talking about the people, not governments, want this relationship sure. to evolve. And I think that the setbacks that have occurred in the last couple of years not only are regrettable, but it's going to take a lot of effort to rebuild them. But mm-hmm. I think that's the way to go. I mean, uh, as as lots of people in Taiwan say, and I've only been there once in May, and I know all three of you have been there often. Uh, gosh, it's a peaceful place and nobody wants any conflict. And of course, the Taiwanese know that if there were a war, they certainly would be obliterated quickly. What has been significant is is Taiwanese investments, uh, which have been approved by mainland China. Um, they're at a 22-year low now, and also investments the other way uh, from uh, from China uh, into Taiwan. They're at their lowest since uh, mainland investment first started back in 2019. Mark, I mean, I presume that's something that your members are experiencing firsthand. Yeah, absolutely. As I suggest, the highest level was under Mayan Zhou, Kuomintang president, with whom China felt relatively comfortable, and who definitely reached out to China and really 
really what really oversaw the period that Barry just described mm. uh, in Taiwan and, and China relations. Getting back to that, I think, is going to be very difficult. So our members, many of them, just like with China, they're diversifying their supply chains as much as they can. With Taiwan, as uh, I think as Will and others have suggested, that's a bit more difficult. It's a bit more difficult to do that very quickly, given the, the, the quality and the, and the technology in Taiwan, especially in semiconductors. Okay. Well, let's turn our attention to the U.S. Um, economy. We've had some uh, inflation data out at the end of last week. Headline uh, CPI rose 3.4%. Uh, that's an increase from the five-month low of 3.1%, which was seen in November. The core inflation rate uh, was at 3.9%, slightly above um, expectations. The PPI, though, uh, declined unexpectedly. The producer price index decreased minus 0.1% last month. I mean, Will, how do we reconcile uh, these two inflation reports? On the one hand, um, you've got the CPI report indicating that uh, a sort of above-trend inflation may be not going away as quickly as we thought. But then you've got the PPI, um, which seems to suggest that this inflation is going to continue. How, how do we reconcile this? What's the message? Well, I, I don't think we should get too caught up in the details of the and the vagaries of the different inflation measures. We're going to get another consumer price index out, the uh, the PCE price index, uh, in a in a few days. That uh, I think the CPI measure, you know, it has some some oddities. Uh, things like in medical care, uh, because it only counts out of pocket expenses. If you have any shift in the share of the bill that's paid by third party. Uh, payers like the government or insurance companies versus the the actual consumer, you can show big uh, swings in toward inflation or deflation when in fact prices haven't changed. It's just the the nature of who pays the bill that has changed. We're seeing some of that in CPIs. So part of the reason I think we saw an upside surprise in CPI was um, you had a pretty fast uptick in medical care services uh, costs. Uh, after last year showing deep deflation in that sector. In reality, we didn't have deep deflation in, in medical care services last year. It was a, a just an oddity of the way they construct that index, which is one of the reasons why the Fed favors the PCE. So mm. so after telling you we shouldn't get too caught up in the oddities of the <laughs> indices, I've just, I've just done it. Uh, but I think what we should do now is, having said that, abstract away from that and look at the big picture, which is I do think that the trend is is toward disinflation. Uh, that trend, by some measures at least, uh, CPI, for example, uh, lost some momentum in the second half of last year, kind of quit, quit falling. Um, the PCE has shown a, a little bit more consistent downtrend, but on the whole, if you take them all as, as a group, uh, we've had dis we had disinflation from the very high peaks in mid 2022, uh, and so the big question going into the new year, um, which has has now begun, is will this disinflation trend continue or not? If it does, rate cuts from the Fed are are in order. I think March is probably a little bit early to be. I mean, the market's very convinced that we're going to get rate cuts starting in March. We might, but um, I, I think there's a pretty a pretty decent chance that the market gets disappointed on that. But if we do continue with this disinflation trend, which is my base case, I do think we're looking at rate cuts sometime this year. 
But the market's well, now our- pricing in seven of them. That's basically a rate cut at every single meeting this year. That, that seems very aggressive, doesn't it? Absolutely. But, Will, let me ask you, uh, are you saying then that the latest CPI report was a blip because uh, going from 3.1 annualized or 12-month inflation to 3.4, that's not what I would call disinflation? Yes, I am basically saying I think it's noise. Um, so, I mean, if you if you look at over the last three months, six months, um, <clears throat> Uh, excuse me, uh, in CPI, the three-month average was was at, at, at actually below target, below the Fed's 2% target. Um, if you look at, you know, six or 12 months averages, it's still above, as you said, 3.4 for the 12-month. Um, but the trend has been toward toward lower inflation. Now, one month, we should never really put too much weight in one month of, of inflation data. So, so yes, short answer is I, I do think it's it's a blip. I could be wrong. And I do think the Fed is data-dependent. Um, I don't, I think politics may play in a little bit, but, you know, to me, the politics are if, if Powell does not want Trump uh, in office, which I'm pretty sure he doesn't, the way Trump treated Powell um, when he, he was in office. But but what does that mean? That means, okay, what do you need to do to keep Trump out of office? You need to bring inflation down because inflation was not very popular for Biden. If that reignites, that's not going to help Biden any. You need to keep the U.S. out of recession. Okay, so so what's Powell's politically motivated goal? A soft landing. Well, what was his goal before politics, you know, got involved? A soft landing. So, um, you know, whether he can actually pull it off or not remains to be seen. But so far, it's he's he's done. Uh, he's either been lucky or good. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I, I I think right now we're on the trajectory toward a soft landing. Hopefully, it continues. Um, on those, you know, the number of rate cuts that you mentioned, Peter, is quite aggressive. Um, you know, if we get a a soft landing, I think that's probably a little bit aggressive in terms of the number of rate cuts. Um, I think what the market is pricing in is at least some risk uh, that we get a recession. Um, and if we do, then you're talking that many rate cuts, if not more. Um, but if we don't get a recession, then I think we're looking at a modest number of rate cuts. I don't know how many, but less than the market is currently pricing. How much is China's deflation impacting the U.S.? A lot. I think it has brought prices down. Uh, You're aware I spend a fair bit of time in Walmart and uh, Target just wandering the aisles and looking at prices. I see a lot of retreating prices. Um, You know, that's not a big thing, because if you look at automobiles, for example, that that's still a a big factor, although gasoline certainly has been a disinflationary factor. China has nothing to do with that. But I think China does have an impact. Peter, if I could just uh, pick up on a couple points, I think we have to speak in terms of more precise wording. I think we've had the soft landing. I mean, after all, the analogy is an airplane and you're going to come in for a landing. Well, I think the landing was somewhere in the last six months. So we've landed and the Fed has been super successful. But maybe part of the reason that the market specialists are looking at so many likely rate increase rate cuts in 2024 is the election. So certainly by June and a slowing economy, which is what higher interest rates are intended to achieve, I think that you could look at interest rate cuts by mid-year because of the election. Mm. But normally, in the normal run of things, you don't get seven rate cuts 
in a year because of anything good. It's only something bad that would cause seven rate cuts, whether it be a financial crisis or something along those lines or a deep recession. It can't be a good thing, can it? Yeah, I'm more with Peter on this one. I think um, there's strong arguments on both sides. But as far as the politics go, I think if it was just politics uh, that were driving rate cuts, I think we'd get a lot fewer than that. I, I don't. Um, I think if if the economy wasn't looking weak, if inflation wasn't quickly falling below target, and we may get both of those things. And if we do, then I think those, those number of rate cuts will be justified, but that wouldn't be on politics. If we don't see that, if inflation is either at target or above, if the economy is still chugging along in terms of growth, then, you know, seven rate cuts for no reason other than politics would be pretty, obviously, for no reason other than politics. And I think it would open up Amen. the Fed to criticism. Um, and it we won't do that. Extension, open up Biden to, to criticism of, of Goose and the system for his own benefit. Yeah, I agree. The Fed's so, not going to do think the, I don't think the White I don't think either the White House or the Fed wants to open itself up to that criticism. So... I think we only get that many rate cuts if we see a an overshoot on the downside in terms of inflation and or um, a pretty significant slowdown in growth. Mark, one of the things that stood out in the, the batch of data that we've seen recently is Chinese exports to the United States. They've seen the, the biggest plunge in, in nearly 30 years, down th- over 13% um, compared to a year ago. I mean, is that something that uh, you're noticing over here? Sure, it's 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 changed. I mean, the patterns have changed. This isn't all politics. It's partly politics, partly geopolitics, but it's partly a change in supply chains and change change of of demand and 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 a lot of other factors, and also diversification. As certainly a lot of our members are, one of the things that's very common among many of them, even if they're committed to China, they're diversifying considerably both both ways. And of course, if they're exporting to to the U.S. or exporting from Vietnam or from from somewhere else, rather than rather than from China, to uh, to lessen the the uh, political political uh, trade winds more or less as well. So yeah, that that's an indicator. Is this going to continue for a long time? That's hard to tell, but it seems like we've had a shift in patterns. Mark, is that rather than China or in addition to China? Is it a China well, plus it's, one? It's China plus one and two. So most of our members haven't haven't backed out. In fact, some of them have recommitted. But at the same time, almost all of them are are finding ways to be less dependent on China. There are some examples of some that have really moved away from China. That was for for business reasons as much or more than geopolitical reasons. And those are in areas like garments and others where they move toward South Asia and Southeast Asia. Well, you said earlier you like global trade, you like countries being interactive and to a certain extent when it comes to trade depending upon each other. I presume that this type of plunge in, in, uh, in trade between China and, uh, and, and the US is not good for China, but it's not particularly good for the US either, is it? Well, it's not. Let me just... So when during the many delegations that we took when I was from the American Chamber and others to China during those times when trying to uh, get China more involved with the global economy, which eventually resulted in them joining WTO, which has become very controversial. <laughs> you succeeded, Mark. <laughs> very controversial, of course. <laughs> but nonetheless, but what we pointed to, and this was uh, the U.S.-China Business Council, 
always put out statistics on exports between China and various states and every state. And we pointed out to each state, it was significant for them in terms of their business mm -hmm. because they benefited from that. Even if there was a deficit, still it, it created jobs, it, it created new industries and so on. Even if that's still true to some extent, it's true to a lesser extent. And it's very hard to make that point and have any credibility these days uh, now. So things have changed. Will, you, you like trade. You, you yeah, said so yeah. earlier. I mean, this is... I do like trade. I do, I do think, I mean, it depends on the reason for why companies are, or why trade is, is falling. Um, I think some of it, I suspect, is is trade getting rerouted. So some of it may ultimately actually be coming from China, but because yeah. it goes to another country, it gets counted elsewhere. Uh, but to the extent that trade from China to the U.S. is actually in in, in, effect, in reality declining, you know, to the extent that that's because of protectionist measures from the U.S., which we've obviously had had plenty, uh, to my mind, that's a bad thing. That's a distortion of the market. That's that's policymakers getting in the way of consumer uh, wants. Uh, to the extent that that is companies recognizing, okay, yes, global trade is good, globalization is good, but there's there's a there's a robust way to do that and a fragile way to do that, and we just got a big lesson in the downsides of building the system in a fragile manner uh, with COVID as well as the, um, the the trade wars, and so you know such a large proportion of global trade was coming from China, it's quite. Um, conceivable that uh, that that got a little long in the tooth and that balancing things out a little bit uh, is for the better in the long run. So uh, I haven't recently looked into those flows that in that detail, but that's that would be my impression um, today. One thing I will say, you asked about what is driving inflation down? Is it China disinflation uh, driving U.S. inflation down? I think that's part of it. I think if, if I had to summarize it, I would do it this way. So it's often said that inflation is more money chasing fewer goods. And I think what we have today is the opposite of that. We have less money. We have a contraction in money supply in the U.S., which has with a lag weight on inflation. And at the same time, we have more goods. Uh, and we have more goods thanks to a couple of things. One is that those supply chain disruptions that we had during COVID have eased significantly. Every measure, whether local, you know, domestically or globally, of supply chain pressures has improved dramatically since 2022. And you've had big productivity gains in the US. Now, the big question is, will these trends persist or not? Um, on the supply chain aspects, I think probably yes. I think the, the big global supply chain disruptions that we had during COVID are a one-off. Uh, could, could we and are we seeing pockets of disruptions? Absolutely, the Red Sea, of course, comes to mind. Uh, but the US, depends very little on Red Sea trade. In fact, I imagine one of the things that's going to come up in this election cycle is why are we taking the lead? Why is the U.S. taking the lead uh, defending a shipping channel it hardly uses? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, basically, it's basically... Because the, we're, the U.S. is the world's policeman. That's yeah, what yeah, Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Biblical implications, I'd say. But anyway, that's another... Yeah, but, but, but and that was, that was easy enough to say uh, 10 years ago, now that now that the government is so indebted, deficit spending is so high, even during uh, low unemployment periods, uh, and now that debt is no longer free, that they're paying interest on it, there is, I, I do wonder, 
you know, I think it'll, I'm sad, uh, saddened to say, I'm afraid this will fit quite nicely into Trump's uh, theme of NATO countries need to step up. And I think this will play play into that perfectly. So probably true. Uh, uh, Peter, yeah, can US, I just add? I mean, not very vulnerable to it. Believed years ago that Mexico would be the biggest exporter to the United States market. What a turnaround. That's amazing. Now, if you would have said the other way around, we export to, to Mexico, of course. But wow. And a lot of that, of course, is transshipment. Things that are coming in from East Asia and then they're assembled and then they benefit from the free trade agreement. So that's that's a reality. The other thing is that um, I, I think that we should not be unaware that there seems to be some improvement in U.S.-China relations. Because this track two business that you had the military people meeting in Beijing in November, then you had the two presidents meeting. And now you've got these several off the record discussion groups, if you want to call them that, that are being activated. This is the best news we've seen on bilateral relations in a very long time. But I, I agree with I agree with Barry on that. I just want to add one point related to trade as well. And how much an impact this has, I don't know. But there were expectations among a lot of our members that those talks that you're talking about between Xi and Biden, there might be some movement on the tariffs and on trade. There was none again. And of course, they were continued under Biden and in some cases reinforced. That probably is discouraging some some trade, some U.S. trade with China as well. To how much, it's hard to know. But certainly in terms of expectations, uh, it affected, I think it affected some companies. Barry, what, what's your assessment of why we're seeing this big decline in, in U.S.-China trade? Is it that U.S. consumers now have gone off of buying Chinese goods because of all the uh, political things they're, they're hearing about? Or is it it's just getting more and more difficult to get Chinese goods to the stores? Or is it a combination of both, maybe? The short answer is, I don't know. I think that there's a lot of things that um, contribute to these lags in data. Will, you're the expert on this. I, I, I don't know why. I don't think that you're seeing a real diminution. Yes, of course, we've talked about the uh, uh, offshoring in the sense of, of uh, trying to minimize one's dependence on China. But uh, the, the, the basic economic relationship has not changed. Mark, given all of this, why is the People's Bank of China not cutting interest rates? They had an opportunity yesterday, didn't they, to, to do something and to match all the rhetoric with some real action. Economists were expecting them uh, to do that. In a Bloomberg poll, 14 out of 18 economists expected a cut. But once again, they sat on their hands. Well, I think you should turn this over to Will because Gavkel Dragonomics uh, just put out a put out a paper on, on that very topic and sort of explained it, I think, pretty well. Will, do you want to uh, want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, our China team was expecting a rate cut, like most people. Um, and the best explanation we have for why they didn't cut was everybody was expecting it, and the PBOC wants <laughs> people on their toes. They don't. They, they, they don't I mean, the PBOC has, has a natural aversion to kind of being too friendly to investors uh, and, and their herd mentality. They like to try and avoid that. Um, so that's our that's our best guess. I, I think taking a step back, um, you know, it's probably mostly a timing issue. We do still think that they will cut rates probably in February or March. Uh, but again, just keeping market participants on their toes a bit. Um, the, the bigger 
issue, though, is that this kind of fits into this narrative that Chinese policymakers are not ready to come out clearly in support of growth uh, with stimulus. Um, you know, they've they've been sending mixed signals. Um, you know, they seem to be getting a little bit more market friendly toward the end of last year, and then surprised everybody with the the gaming rule changes right on the eve of uh, Christmas break, basically. Um, and then and then, but then that got walked back to an extent, and the person got fired. So then, okay, maybe things are still still on track, and then we get this, and so. Uh, for investors in China, you know it's it, it's hard it's hard for people for money managers to go to their boards, go to their bosses, and make the case for China right now because the you know the, they'll come back and say, listen, growth is disappointed, policy is not clearly stimulative, uh, regulatory risk is extremely high, um, geopolitical uncertainties uh, are extremely high, and so what are you? what are you selling us on? And basically the only thing you can say is China's cheap. Um, and it is very cheap. So, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, there is a saying that, you know, when things couldn't get any worse, they often don't. So, um, so things, you know, China could be setting itself up for a big rebound if either growth can start to pick up or policy can be more clearly in the direction of, of growth positive. We just haven't seen that yet in either case. Well, let me add to the production there is, is generally reliable and and you know higher quality than than elsewhere and and I think many companies feel more comfortable. But exactly what Will said, I I think the expectations were including among among companies and a lot of people that we deal with is that that China was going to take action to stimulate mm -hmm. the economy more strongly than it has. You can argue whether that's wise or not so wise, and so in not doing so, it just sets that back again, just as a lot of countries around Asia are waiting for Chinese tourists to return, you know, for them to come out to, to Southeast Asia, things like that. China plays an enormous role in the in not only the economies, but in the businesses of everybody that we're working with. And when when expectations are not met, even modest expectations, then of course there are greater worries. And the pressure comes from uh from headquarters and from shareholders who give you give a lot of these executives calls on often Tuesday morning, seeing the news over the weekend and saying, what's happening here? Why is the economy not moving? Should we think of doing something else or should we think of cutting back or whatever? They don't always do it, but it puts greater pressure on their investments, even even regular uh, FDI as well as uh, financial investments. Will, perhaps one thing I could add to your list of, of reasons as to, to why investors are staying away um, is also corporate earnings are being decimated by deflation um, now on the mainland. There's a hugely competitive environment, lots of price slashing going on now in, in just all sorts of industries. This presumably is another problem. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would put that in the general bucket of growth being disappointing. Nominal growth, as you say, has been, has been particularly disappointing. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I agree. Mark, you, your, your firms are, are seeing that, I presume. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about China needs to do something to stop the economy falling into a deflationary price spiral. Um, are there signs that that's already happening now? Well, I mean, to some extent. And the, and the worry also is, is confidence, consumer confidence, which we've talked a little, bit, a little bit about before, but that it hasn't come back. And, you know, the the lingering effects of COVID and and what company have, you know, people still want to save 
and not spend as much. And part of that has to do with all the issues that you're you're mentioning. Of course, disinflation uh, contributes to that situation as well. So uh, I'm not these uncertainties are adding. I'm not you know, saying that the Chinese economy going forward, I don't know if Will and Barry would agree, doesn't looks reasonable in this year compared to a lot of other places in the world. It's just below expectations. Mm-hmm. And that that obviously affects what what companies decide to do or don't do. But there is a very weak consumption. Sorry, sorry, we'll carry on. I was just going to say on the disinflation, and I I haven't studied China very closely recently, but uh, Mark may have views from his his members. But, you know, disinflation could be a good thing. It can can set the economy up for being more competitive going forward. So, you know, we we should be prepared for that to to potentially be a turn into a positive. But, you know, for now, I think um, the the disinflation we're seeing and the, the the real growth slowdown that we're seeing is 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 weighing on things, but it could could set us up for a recovery at some point. The problem is it's leading to a very weak consumption environment, isn't it? There's just no consumer confidence, and and you're seeing that being reflected in the market in consumer stocks. They're the worst performers in the MSCI China um, index at the moment. So you're you're seeing, you know, restaurant operators, uh, department stores, the the big into e-commerce firms like Alibaba, all really suffering at the moment. No, there's no, and our and you know our members too. Those that are in consumer businesses or are related to consumer businesses. The expectations again have not been met, even even though they've they've lowered their expectations. Yeah, Barry. Final final thoughts from from you then on on the on the interaction between uh between China and and the U.S. economy. I mean, if if we do see um, this this deflation take hold um, on the mainland, which is economists' fears at the moment, if if government doesn't act and if policymakers um, don't do something, um, how big a problem is that for the global economy? I don't think it's a problem at all because uh, lower prices, lower export prices uh, are good news for Europeans and good news for Americans. I mean, again, I I would come back to this track two reactivation. I mean, whether it's going to be on investment or financial markets or uh, just the nature of the Chinese versus the United States economy, this is a plus the sort of soft response we've seen on both sides from the Taiwan election. So if uh, China wants to have its exports more competitively priced, that's a good thing, not bad for the world economy. Thank you very much for your thoughts this morning. Great discussion. Very, very interesting um, topics there. Uh, that's Barry Wood, our U.S. economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C. You also heard Will Denyer, who is the U.S. economist at Gavacal, and Mark Michelson, who is chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at Peter Lewis Money talk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Mark Toe, Managing Director of Asset Management at the Wing Fung Financial Group. And with a view from Japan, it's Nick Smith, Japan Strategist at CLSA. Bye for now. Money Talk.